So let us center ourselves in these words by Ernest Holmes. I live in the faith that there is a presence and power greater than I am that nurtures and supports me in ways I could not even imagine. I know that this presence is all-knowing and all-power and is always right where I am. (sighs) Infinite presence is all there is. Knowing this is truth, I see everyone around me as emanations of that divine energy, divine light, divine love, divine aliveness. Spirit radiates inspiration, joy, strength, and so much more. Centered in this reality, ah, there is only one. And this infinite presence is boundless, is abundant, is filled with all good for each of us. Accepting this oneness, I see this morning celebration filled with words that inspire, music that is joy, community coming together as strength and aliveness. With this spirit, this unity, this acceptance of these gifts, my mind and my heart are grateful for all of this. For this is the reality of who I am and the community I am in. With this realization, I release this into the law, knowing that it is already done. And together we say, and so it is. I was up last night at um, Bellevue Unity. Uh, Reverend Marla, who some of you may remember, uh, who was for a little while an interim minister here, uh, was installed as the uh, minister up at Bellevue Unity, so I was up there. And the the presiding minister, Reverend John McLean, uh, at one point said, I'm done playing church. He's, he's a senior minister in Nashville, uh, Tennessee, but he's done playing church. He's about ministry. And I want us to take and embody that kind of consciousness of being done playing church. There's a difference, right? We have this teaching that's so powerful, it's so liberating, it's so freeing. And it's ours to live it and then to express it out. And so I want us to be done playing church and be about this teaching, about this liberation for ourselves and for the world. Because in case you haven't noticed, the world could use a little light and love and liberation. Have you noticed? Okay, a little shift in consciousness. I mean, I can use a shift in consciousness, so I know if I can, there are other people who probably can too. And so let us be about that. So today we're going to look at the resurrection story again. Happy Easter, by the way. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, today is Easter Sunday. 
So we get to sell, it's a double holiday. You know, we get to celebrate it twice. If you didn't get enough chocolate and eggs last week, you can have some more this week. It's really okay. If, if you didn't have enough peeps last week, <laughs> you can have more this week. It's okay. I won't judge you. Somebody, other people here may, but I won't. So, um, I'm trying to read my writing here. See, I write my talk out on the computer, and then the morning of it gets rearranged. And so today I sat down on my computer and wrote a whole other two pages of the talk and also made handwritten notes. And I've been accused of having doctor's handwriting. In other words, I can't read it and nobody else can either. So I was sitting there going, what did I write there? Um, and it's just that there are, the Easter story, the reason I wanted to look at the Easter story, last week we had an Easter or a resurrection experience, right? A bought an embodied experience. We had, we had, we had that experiential. But I want to talk about the story because sometimes our mind gets confused because there's, there's confusion around this story in case you haven't noticed. There's a whole lot of layers and a whole lot of junk around it. So the first thing is that this story is the foundational moment of Christianity. It's what Christianity is based on, just like Judaism is based on the Exodus, just like uh, Buddhism is based on, on Bo- the Buddha being enlightened under the Bodhi tree, just like uh, Muhammad meeting with the angel Gabriel in the cave is the foundational moment of, of Islam. So this resurrection is the, is the cornerstone, if you will, of Christianity. And all of these stories, all of these stories that I just mentioned, all these foundational stories are historically dubious. Take a breath. They're historically dubious. They may not have actually happened as they were written. And that each has this enormous archetypal power that launched entire spiritual movements that live and thrive today. So there's something there. Even if they're not historically accurate, there is something there. And that's what I want to look at today is that energy, that consciousness, that, that what is it that set all these ships sailing off into the human consciousness, the sea of consciousness. So in order to have a clearer understanding of what this resurrection experience or story is, we have to clear away the debris of what it's not. Last week I I quoted J.R.R. Tolkien from his uh, uh, preface to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, where he says, this is a tale that grew in the telling. And so the Easter story is a tale, a resurrection story, is a tale that grew in the telling. I don't know if you know the order of of, uh, timing of the people who wrote in the New Testament, but the earliest writer in the New Testament is actually Paul. Paul was writing about 55 years after the death of Jesus, and even though his writings are stuck after the Gospels, everything he wrote was before the Gospel writers started writing Gospels. So he has a, a simple take on that, That of an experience of a resurrection, we're going to talk about that later, of, of an appearance, of an experience of it, that I want to talk about later. I'm going to put that aside for just a moment. So the next writer is Mark, chronologically. Mark has this simple story of, of, of Jesus, and he's telling the stories, and, and, and all the gospel writers want to portray Jesus as the Messiah in a certain way. So Mark is pretty much just as straightforward. He's the Messiah. Matthew wants to make him into the new Moses. Luke wants to make him into the new Elijah. Okay, so when you're reading these stories, if you go back to the stories of those people, you'll see the ties in between. That's your Bible lesson for the day. So Mark has his story ending just simply, the women come to the tomb, there's a guy sitting there in a white robe who just simply says he's not here, he's gone, he's probably going to be ahead of you in Galilee. And the women, and it says the women leave and tell nobody, and that's the end of Mark. 
There's actually uh, 12 more verses that were added on later by somebody else where suddenly you got Jesus out there telling everybody what to do. That Jesus. But that's not Mark. Okay? So Mark just leaves it there. He's no longer in, in there. And there's this guy in this white robe. Matthew, 10 years later, comes on Matthew-like story. Matthew likes to exaggerate. And so there's an earthquake, and there's an angel, and his countenance is like lightning, and his garments are like snow. And, all, and there, are, there are people who rise up out of the tombs and are wandering through the city of Jerusalem being seen by people. And all this stuff. Okay. Story that grew in the telling. Okay. And then Luke. See, Luke is trying to make Jesus into the new Elijah. Elijah ended his life by being taken bodily up into heaven in a flaming chariot. Remember that? from your Bible study classes early on, some of you. He's got to do one better. He's got to have Jesus ascend bodily into heaven, just lifted up on his own power, right? But in order to do that, you've got to have a body, right? Yes? So in Luke is where you get all the stories of Jesus sits down and has food with people, and Thomas puts his hands in the, in the, you know, the wounds, all, you know, all that stuff, but he walks through walls and he you know, just appears. So it's this really confusing thing. Anybody ever get confused reading all those stories? Kind of, you know, yeah. Uh, Bishop John Shelby Spong in his book uh, that he calls Unbelievable. That should give you a clue. This is an Episcopal bishop. Says, to begin the journey into the resurrection, we start with the fact that Paul and the Gospels disagree on both whether there was a tomb into which Jesus was laid and whether that tomb literally became empty. From that initial fact, the other disagreements flow with regularity. All of the gospel sources agree that women went to the tomb on the first day of the week, but they disagree on who the women were and on what they found there. They disagree on whether these women actually saw the risen Christ. Mark says no, Matthew says yes, Luke says no, and John says yes. They disagree on where the twelve disciples were when the risen Christ supposedly appeared to them for the first time. Mark implies that it would be in Galilee. Matthew states that it was in Galilee. Luke says it was never in Galilee, but only in Jerusalem. And John says it was in both Jerusalem and Galilee. Take a breath. (laughs) They disagree on whether the resurrection occurred on the third day or after three days. They disagree on who saw the raised Christ first. It was Peter, says Paul. The women of the tomb, says Matthew. Cleopas in Emos, says Luke. And Magdalene alone, says John. That's kind of a confusing set of things, right? Can you, you know... We have to understand... Today we have this thing we like to call objective reporting, right? Although most of us understand that objective reporting never really is. Okay? But we try to do, you know, the, the myth of just the facts, ma'am. You remember the old 50s, 50s show? Just the facts, ma'am. They're always clouded. But in the time of the gospel writers and the time of Jesus, and in fact, still today in the Middle East, it's about story. And how great can you make the story? How interesting and exciting can you make the story? If it's factual, hey, that's nice. But how's the story? And by the way, we like the same thing. How many of you have seen the Titanic, the movie Titanic? Do you think it was totally factually accurate? Was there a relationship that happened between those two people on that boat? Probably not. Okay? So we still like that. We call it historical fiction. So it's fiction that takes place within a set of history that we know is real. So it's important to understand, if we're going to step back and, and look at this first, the perspective of the world at this time. And in, in most cultures at that point in time, the world was a three-tiered, three-layered place. See, today we know it's a sphere rotating through space, right? 
and we're part of a planetary system called the solar system, which is what revolves around the sun, which is part of a galaxy, which is part of multiple galaxies. And if you really pay attention to your, your astrology, uh, astronomic, you know that the, the sun itself is actually moving through the galaxy. And so we're constantly in motion. We kind of know that. We're, we're still processing that. Most of us don't say this is a beautiful earth rotation this morning. It's, it was a beautiful sunrise this morning, right? But the sun wasn't rising. We were rotating. We're moving at 1,000 miles an hour right now. Feel the breeze? But for the people at that time, it was a three-tiered world. Up above was the heavens, where the gods and the angels lived. Okay? And whether that's the Greek gods up on Mount Olympus, or you know, the god who lived you know, for, the, for the Jews up above the earth, it was, it was the heavens were the realm of gods and angels. In the middle was the earth, which is the realm of us, human life. And down below was the underworld, which is the realm of where people go after they die. In the Greeks, it was called Hades. In, uh, in the Jewish tradition, it was called Sheol, which has been translated as hell. And the original translation, the original meaning of the word, had nothing to do with punishment, fire. That all came much later. Thank Dante for that. Okay? And so it's just known as the realm of the dead. It's not a place of punishment. It's just where bodies would go, where people would go after they died. And tombs were the entrance point to the underworld. And it was normally a one-way journey. Okay? Jesus is purported to have made this trip a return trip. Right? Yes? Okay. But let's take a look at that. Paul says that there was a rising, and we all agree there was a rising, but rising into what? And Paul says that Christ rose to the right hand of God. He doesn't say he appeared on earth. He said he rose to the right hand of God, but not that he appeared in the flesh to others. His appearance, the word that he uses, is actually more of vision and awareness because he includes himself in that. He says, last of all, he appeared to me. Now, Paul says elsewhere he never met Jesus, so he couldn't have physically appeared to him. How many of you have ever had the experience of having a loved one pass away, and after they pass away, have sort of an experience of you see them, you feel them, you see, you, there's, there's a sense of something, right? Many of us have. Okay? It's that same sort of an experience that I believe that Paul is talking about, that the others that he says experienced Jesus were talking about. What if this rising to the right hand of God, as he put it, and the right hand of God simply means you're in the power, you're in alignment with this presence. What if it meant rising into a complete alignment with God to the release of all human attachment? What if that was the rising that was taking place? It wasn't about a body walking out of a grave. It wasn't about a body walking out of a grave. What if this seeing was something else? What if it was the opening of our eyes of their people, his friends' eyes, to see a life that was driven not by self, self-interest or survival. Most people in those days were just about self-interest and survival, right? Fortunately, we're not like that these days. But back in those days, them, they, there was a whole lot of survival. But this was a life that was driven by love. It was driven by love. What if the perception, the vision that opened up was to see and experience this life. See, life is always available to us, but do we always see it? Do we always see it? I can say for me, no, I don't always see it. A lot of time I don't see it. Once in a while I do. 
This opened up the concept of a God that was not this anthropomorphic, angry, petty judge king sitting on a throne up above them, but more of an essence of pure love, which is what Jesus taught in his lifetime. Right? And that there was an eternal life that was beyond death. An eternal life that was beyond death. There was something beyond just this seeming ending right here. And in those days, especially, that was a big deal. There was this end, and nobody knew what happened after that, excepting we went to this lower place. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, there's this concept called the harrowing of hell. I don't know if anybody's heard of that. Um, I remember it from my Catholic upbringing. And it was it said that between the time that Jesus died and the time that he rose, he went down to hell, Sheol, the underworld, not the place of punishment, just the underworld, and raised everybody from the dead and took them all up with him to the Father in heaven. In effect, he frees creation from the idea and the concept of death. He frees all of creation from that. This is also, by the way, referred to in Matthew, which I mentioned earlier about following Jesus' death, that many tombs burst open and the dead walked out and were seen by many people who were in, among the living. To, real, to, to be aware of this story, everything that's in the New Testament, everything that is in the, written in the New Testament is committed to the reality of the resurrection experience. Remember that the, all the Gospels are not written forward as time moving forward. They're written with something already happened and they're writing the history backward. It's like knowing the outcome of the football game and then watching to see what happens on your, on your DVR, right? You already know what's going to happen. You already know the outcome. And so you aim, and so they're creating it as they go, so they get to create the story aiming towards this. They pull in scriptures that they, from their Old Testament that they think will, will resonate with this and will support the idea of Jesus being the new Moses or Jesus being the new Eliza or whatever. So they're writing about this. But what is this experience that they're talking about? It's not about bodies walking out of graves. It's about transcending the old limited views of life. It's about transcending the portion where we believe in death. Take a breath. Just take a breath. It's about seeing the death and life or the yin-yang experiences within a greater experience of life. The life-death, two sides of the same coin, but they exist within something that's greater. And guess what? We're part of that greater. We're, we ourselves are in that greater. It's about seeing that the nature of love and of life transcend this short journey that we take. I'm going to read from the Bhagavad Gita, which also has a wonderful perspective on life. And this is Krishna speaking to Arjuna. He says, The wise grieve neither for the living nor for the dead. There has never been a time when you and I and the kings gathered here have not existed. And that's speaking to each of us. There's never been a time that you and I have never existed. Take a breath. Nor will there be a time when we will cease to exist. As the same person inhabits the body through infancy, youth, and old age, so too at the time of death he attains another body. The wise are not deluded by these changes. The self cannot be pierced by weapons or burned by fire. Water cannot wet it, nor can the wind dry it. As a man abandons worn-out clothes and acquires new ones, so when the body is worn out, a new one is acquired by the self who lives within. We are here to remember that truth. We are here to embody that truth. 
this story isn't about cheering for a guy who did something cool 2,000 years ago. Spectator consciousness. Yay, my Jesus rose. He's now my Savior. It's not about that. Just like it's not about, oh, Buddha was really cool, or it's not just about, you know, uh, Hare Krishna, praise Krishna, and put him up on a pedestal. It's about, can we recognize ourselves as that Christ consciousness? Can we recognize ourselves as that Buddha mind? Can we recognize ourselves as the compassionate, deep love that Krishna embodies? Can we recognize all these archetypes live within and as us? Nudge your neighbor and say, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. Why does all this matter to us? If we go deep within ourselves, if, we, if, if, if I could get with you and peel away a lot of layers, we'd find that most of us are caught up in a belief in and a desire for, take a breath, death. In the rebirthing community, this is known as the death urge. We believe in death. Many of us desire some form of that death as, as a path out of the pain, the fear, the feeling unloved and unvalued. Take a breath. For a long time, some of, I've shared this before, for a long time I, I work and, and with thoughts of suicide from the time that I was a teenager up until my mid-50s. Uh, suicide was kind of a constant little, you know, if something went wrong, that was the first thought that I thought, I'm just going to kill myself and get out of here. Fortunately, I got over that. And fortunately, I never actually did it, by the way. I tried a couple times when I was a teenager, but I never actually succeeded. But what I realized after, in the years subsequent to that, after that, once I kind of took that layer off, was there was a subtle killing of my dreams. There were ways that I would kill off dreams. They would kill off life, my, my life, what I wanted to do in life, my life energy. And what I know from working with other people is I'm not the only one. There's at least one person sitting, probably the one in the chair, that feels the same way. We have that same sort of energy. We crucify our brilliant self, our brilliant capital S self, to fit within our beliefs about what others want us to be. And I'll rephrase that, or repeat that just so you got it. Within our beliefs of what others want us to be, which is different than what others want us to be, Right? We play small out of fear of disapproval. We play small out of fear of disappointing, of being disappointed. You know, whenever I come into, I've, I've come into three new churches, and whenever I come into a new church, sometimes I propose new ideas, and one of the things I get is, oh, we tried that before. Didn't work. Let's not do it again. It's like, it's a different stream. You know, you can't put your foot in the same stream twice. It's a different time. We're different people. It's a, you know... So we, we hold back. The other thing we sometimes do is out of anger and, and rebellion, we make war on these limitations. But we're still fighting the limitations. We're not sitting there going, who is my authentic self? What is my authentic self? Why am I really here to be? Who am I really here to be? The risen Christ with, exists within each of us. This story, however entangled, however messed up the storytellers' agendas were, however you know, not all the facts showed up right, still embodies a truth that we see all around us. We see this resurrection happening all around us. 
The new is constantly coming out of the old. How many of you have noticed that what looked dead two months ago is now blossoming, blooming, and alive? Okay? So we see that in nature. We see this, the resurrection is happening all around us. We just have to recognize that it's our story. It's not an out-there experience. Life is constantly re-emerging out of what we perceived as death. This story, this, this resurrection story, is to take us, to, to kind of paraphrase Rumi, out beyond ideas of living and dying to a new field where we can live, where there's a life that is beyond living and dying. It's to take us out beyond the yin-yang experience to the Tao that is the first cause that is within that. It's to take us out beyond that. And it reminds us that where we really live, really live. I always love people who go to retreats that I've seen. And at the end of the retreat, they say, well, back to reality. It's like, no, that's not reality. This experience of love and light and light, that's reality. And that's back into the disbelief. That's back into the dream. It reminds us of where we really live, that and that is that our own Christ consciousness, our own Buddha nature, is who we truly are. You are the risen Christ. You are the Buddha enlightened. Take a breath and breathe that in. I want to invite us to do three spiritual practices this week. To take that and, and really work with it. First, notice the resurrections that are happening all around you. Pay attention. Where are you seeing new life out of what you thought was dead? Just notice. Right now is a great time to notice that, right? But even in the dead of winter, there are things that bloom, right? Even the dead of winter. The second practice is, recall where in your life you thought things were dead. Relationships, careers, living with a changed body only to find that there was new life beyond that seeming death. Recall where that was in your life. You've already resurrected multiple times. I know that because you're still here. And then thirdly, ask your inner wisdom self, where am I stuck in a garden of Gethsemane experience? Where am I afraid to take the next step? Where am I standing sweating blood, petrified, saying, yeah, I don't want to do this, and be willing to take that next step? Be willing to take that next step. You can surrender and simply say, into your hands I commit my spirit. Into the hands of this wisdom self within me that knows how to do resurrection, that has been constantly doing resurrection, that has been constantly doing this life energy, because life is what there truly is, all there is. Jesus at one point said, my God is not a God of the dead, my God is a God of life. This infinite presence is about life. Your life is not your limited time in your body here. You had life before you came here. You'll have life before this, before after this experience ends. And you have life, guess when? Right now. My question to you is, what are you going to do with that life energy right now? I want to go out in a blaze of glory, being fully alive. I don't want to be sitting there going slowly, well, and slow down. I think I'm going to die here pretty soon, so I'm not going to try anything new. I'm not going to start anything new. I invite you to be fully alive, fully alive, and growing what that means for you until the moment you're not. And maybe that moment won't come. Who knows? But that's our three spiritual practices.
Notice the resurrections that are happening all around you. Just pay attention. Get your awareness out there. Notice, oh wait, this is really happening. Notice where it's already happened in your life. And maybe where it's happening right now in your life. And then ask where I'm stuck and be willing to move past the stuckness. You willing to play with those three practices this week? Great. I want to close with a pair of poems from um, one of my favorite poets, David White. And I'm going to start with a poem that's called Easter Morning in Wales. A garden inside me. Notice that. It's inside me. A garden inside me. Unknown secret. Neglected for years. The layers of its soil deep and thick. Trees in the corner with branching arms and the tangled briars like broken nets. Anybody besides me have a little garden like that inside you somewhere? I guess it's just me. Okay. Sunrise through the misted orchard. Morning sun turns silver on the pointed twigs. I have woken from the sleep of ages, and I am not sure if I am really seeing or dreaming or simply astounded, walking towards sunrise to have stumbled into the garden where the stone was rolled from the tomb of longing. Each of us has a garden. Each of us has a longing for greater life. And the invitation is to roll that stone away from that tomb that you've been in. And finally, I want to close with part of a poem called The True Love. And The True Love is written as though it's to another person, but I want you to also realize it's towards the life that you want, towards the life that really is your life, that is your authentic, true love life the life where you're expressing that. Years ago in the Hebrides, I remember an old man who walked every morning on the gray stones to the shore of baying seals, who would press his hat to his chest in the blustering salt wind and say his prayer to the turbulent Jesus hidden in the water. And I think of the story of the storm and everyone waking and seeing the distant yet familiar figure far across the water calling to them. And how we are all waiting for that, that abrupt awakening and that calling in that moment, we have to say yes. Except it will not come so grandly, so biblically, but more subtly and more intimately in the face of the one you know you have to love, the life you know you have to love. So when we finally step out of the boat toward them, We find everything holds us and everything confirms our courage. And if you wanted to drown, you could, but you don't. Because finally, after all this struggle, after all these years, you don't want to anymore. You've simply had enough of drowning. You want to live and you want to love and you will walk across any territory and any darkness, however fluid and however dangerous, to take the hand of the one that you know belongs in yours. I invite you to take the hand of the life, your life, the one that lives within you, that belongs in yours. Let us move into prayer. So I recognize that there is this life, this oneness, this infinite being that is beyond all the names, it's beyond all the religions, it's beyond all that. This one. It is life. 
thriving, abundant, fully expressing life. All we have to do is look around at the cosmos around us. It is life. It is life. And it is love, because if there is love in anywhere in the universe, then love must exist, and there is love. There is love. It is wisdom and light. And it is joy. And because it is, and it is all that there is, each person here, each of us, must be one of that. And so we are one of life itself. One of this light, this wisdom, this love, this thriving, abundant expression of joy ah, that is all around and within us. We are within it. It is within us. We and that are one. And so I speak my word that today we resurrect more deeply, more fully. We recognize this story. We let go of our fears. We let go of our, our holding on. We let go of our little deaths that we have in our lives and let go and live. Live. We say yes to that life more abundant. Join me in that and say yes to that life more abundant. And out of that must come because this universe responds to our thought, to our willingness, to our openness. There must come an experience of greater life, a life of joy, a life of love, a life of thriving, a life of wholeness and completeness. We say yes to that, and it says yes right back to us. And I am so grateful for all the good that comes to each of us and from each of us, that we radiate this out, and that we therefore shift the consciousness of this world because we are simply the radiating beings and beams of light and love and wholeness, and that is all we have to do. That is all we have to be. And so I release this word into a law that just it's happening it is happening because that is its nature and that is our nature. We have said yes and we have made it so. And we agree on that together by simply saying, and so it is.